invite you to open your Bible to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And we'll be in the first part of that chapter tonight. Philippians chapter 4. Before we begin, I just want to say a quick uh, thank you and, and encouragement to you guys. I was in Westwood this week on Tuesday, and I met with some of you guys, and every time I come on a weekday like that, I'm just so uh, encouraged by the questions that you guys have, the things that you want to work through together, and uh, the sorts of ways that you're thinking about the Lord, and you're thinking about uh, His Word. It's just an encouragement to my soul, so uh, keep growing. I know that this point in the quarter can become a standstill spiritually sometimes because of the busyness, but... Uh, the Lord is doing so much uh, in and through you guys, and so continue to pursue Him uh, faithfully. Uh, before we begin and get into our text, uh, I want you to think of the last time that you were really, really, really hungry. Uh, maybe uh, you were this kind of hungry when you were in your lab class and you began to regret scheduling it during dinner time. Or maybe it's uh, the last time you were at the UCLA football game and after the ride and then getting to the student section, uh, you just couldn't bring yourself to spend that much on nachos. Uh, Or maybe uh, it's that time when you couldn't believe how long it was taking to make soup dumplings. And you had to wait until the process was finished. Maybe for some of you guys, that moment of extreme hunger is right now. Uh, Maybe you were setting up all afternoon and serving and you haven't had a chance to eat yet. We all know how we get what we're like when we're famished. When the growl in your stomach is what drives everything in you. It causes you to think a certain way, uh, to think of foods that aren't even possible to get right now, uh, and your patience begins to wear thin, and even what you do becomes affected, whether it's leaving class early or spending $12 on nachos. There's a reason why Snickers and other companies have capitalized on this common experience. You see, you're not you when you're hungry. We are driven by our hungers in life, whether it's a specific situation when our feelings control us. Maybe it's relational conflict where we let our judgment and our anger and our feelings control us. Uh, Or there's maybe certain situations for you where you get extremely anxious and that's the hunger. Or maybe it's on a broader level of life. Uh, when you have a new major or a new direction you're trying to take, and that becomes the all-consuming thing. Or there's a passion project, you like to call it, and you spend an inordinate amount of time satisfying the hunger of working on that project. You see, whether it's a moment or a season of life, 
These moments or seasons are when our dreams and our emotions and our feelings and our desires meet the tyranny of the urgent and maybe the Superman complex in all of us. And that one thing takes over and that one thing begins to steer the ship. And all right thinking, all logic departs and your patience wears thin and how you live life becomes affected by this one thing. So much of how we live is so readily dictated by how we feel. Our emotions, our appetites, our hungers, maybe what we call our dreams and desires that are really feelings and wants and needs, we call them. At best, it's because we're passionate and aspiring people. And so whatever is on our hearts is what is on the throne. In Philippians 4, Paul shows us, instead of this uh, modus operandi of life, that is being driven by our emotions and our feelings and our desires, he shows us the supreme importance of the mind. Uh, the priority for the Christian to think rightly in these instances that we're going to look at, but in life as a whole. You see, instead of letting our hungers drive us, we ought to give priority and attention to our minds. How we think ought to drive our affections and therefore our lives. You see, at the very core of how we think as pilgrims pressing on and standing firm is a heavenly mindset, a heavenward gaze, that looking up that we looked at last week. We ought to fix our minds on our future hope. This is the truth we saw last week in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You see, as, as pilgrims, the path on our heavenward journey is a battle for the mind. It's a fight to stay focused. To forsake worldly pleasures and not turn to the right or to the left, but to remain on that path to the celestial city. And so if you haven't turned already to Philippians 4, we'll be in verses 2 through 9 to see the battle of the mind. We'll begin in verse 1 for just a little bit of context. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, be by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, we ask that your spirit would illumine our minds and open our hearts and that our lives would be changed even now. Father, we ask that you would grow us tonight in the priority uh, that is how we think. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. But tonight we come to a text that uh, may at first seem unrelated to what we've just looked at in chapter 3. Uh, many a scholar and commentary throw these verses into the miscellaneous uh, end matter sort of category. Uh, they see it as a staccato, sort of hodgepodge of instruction at the end of a Pauline letter. But there is a remarkable cohesiveness in these verses. And I believe this passage will serve to help us further fix our gaze on heaven, to set our mind on things above, and to see the priority of right thinking. Grace on campus, in every sphere and arena of life, we have a choice to think rightly in the Lord and the hope that we have in him, or to seed ground uh, to how we feel and what we want in our flesh, or whatever else it may be that we let steer the ship. And so in Philippians 4, right thinking is heavenward thinking. Uh, right thinking is rejoicing. Uh, right thinking is awareness of his coming. Uh, right thinking is thinking guided by God and guarded by his peace. So let's look at our responsibility to think rightly, uh, defined by who we are in Christ and the hope we have in him. And we'll see how that right thinking will lead us to godly affections and therefore faithful living as well. Now let's look at right thinking in three different realms or three different venues. First, let's look at right thinking in conflict. Right thinking in conflict in verses 2 and 3. Here in Paul's very practical instruction to these two women in the Philippian church uh, to get along we see the significance of right thinking in the midst of conflict. Look again at verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. We don't know the exact nature of their conflict, but to be honest, it's probably a good thing. You see, if we knew, we would probably, as people with good hermeneutics and people as exegetes, 
we would probably start to draw lines and apply it in very specific and helpful, but maybe unhelpful ways. And so because we don't know about the issue at hand or even much about these women, it helps us to focus on the heart of the issue. And that's how right thinking is a balm for conflict in God's church. Now, Paul takes a bit of what at first may seem like a shockingly confrontational approach in this. He he calls these two women out by name. Uh, But keep in mind, in verse 1, he has just very strongly, yet again in this letter, not for the first time, affirmed his love and his affection for everyone in the church. And it's therefore not a dull point that that affirmation includes these two women. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, as Paul addresses each of these women whose conflict was probably quite well known in the church at that time, uh, Paul does so gently, but he does so distinctly, almost as if to pull them each aside. It's as if he were there. He takes them by the shoulder and talks to each of them individually, sort of personally and carefully, guiding them toward peace. You see, the repetition of this word plead, at least in the ESV or entreat, uh, is purposeful. I entreat, I plead. The word is parakaleo. It's to come alongside. And he uses this word with each of their names. I entreat or I plead. Yodia, and I plead or I entreat, Sintiki, for you two to agree in the Lord. That's the kind of picture I get. Literally, this phrase, to agree in the Lord, is to think as one in the Lord. You see, Paul isn't concerned with whatever the issue is, and he's not concerned with what wisdom he's going to bring or experience he has that he can apply to the situation or who's right and who's wrong he's not taking a side here he's not figuring this all out the issue in and of itself the issue at hand for paul is right thinking and these women are to think rightly of one another as one in the lord they are to think rightly in light of their common salvation for Euodia to think of God's uh, amazing grace and mercy that God has saved her redeemed her and that he had done so for Syntyche too and that for Syntyche to think of God's amazing mercy and grace and that God had saved her and redeemed her and had done so for Euodia too You see, in regards to our common salvation, these women are one in Christ. And now in this conflict that has not changed and will not change, and Paul is saying, therefore, think rightly as one and live rightly as one. Look at verse 3. Paul enlists the help of this true companion he says yes i ask you also true companion help these 
women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Uh, Some say this true companion is Epaphroditus because he's the one transporting this letter and probably also the one reading it. But we don't know for sure and all we know is that this true companion is someone that Paul trusts and that like Paul, this true companion could help these women. He could mediate someone who wouldn't try to take sides or try to get so involved to make it personal, but that very simply this true companion would echo Paul's instruction here that these two women would think rightly as one in the Lord. Also in verse 3, Paul paints, Paul, uh, points these women, women to consider their gospel partnership together. You see, it's likely that these women were part of the original group uh, in the early gospel ministry in Philippi. Uh, Perhaps some of the homies at the Riverbank prayer group with Lydia in Acts 16, or maybe their relatives or friends of the Philippian jailer in some way. For Paul, these women have and should now still follow his instruction that he's already given in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. These women, along with Clement, who we don't know much about either, except that he's a gospel co-laborer. He's someone worth mentioning as a solid reference. It's like me saying, hey, you and Riley, you guys did gospel ministry together. And it's someone they can trust, this Clement. These women, Clement and other fellow workers, All of these faithful people striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel. And their names, Paul says, their names are in the book of life. Their names are in what Revelation calls the book of life. A book that chapter 13 of Revelation tells us belongs to the Lamb who was slain. And chapter 20 describes uh, that before the foundation of the world, uh, the names that are written in it are those who know Christ. And so Euodia and Syntyche and Clement and Paul and you and I, if you know Jesus, all predestined by God, all called by God, all justified by God, and all to be glorified by God. And so when you like these women, are a part of conflict with another believer. Or you are that true companion, considering how you can help others resolve their conflict. And maybe your instinct is, uh, when you're in conflict, to dig in your heels and back up your opinion with all kinds of uh, scripture, proof texts. Or you're the true companion and you're maybe rushing to judgment or you're trying to take sides as to who you think is right and use your discernment skills. And 
You want to be the one to solve everything with your amazing mediation. Pause and think. Think rightly. Because you are to think rightly as someone who, like the other brother or sister you are in conflict with, you are and they are found in him. Salvation paid for in full with his blood and with the hope of heaven ever on the horizon. You are to, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, be of the same mind and have the same love and be in full accord and of one mind. You are to, chapter 2, verse 3, eliminate your selfish ambition and conceit and to, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Uh, You are to, chapter 2, verse 5, have the mind that was in Christ Jesus to take on the form of a servant and set aside your opinion and entitlements, your reasons and your arguments. And you are to think as one in the Lord. You are to agree in the Lord. You are to think rightly. Romans 14 and 15 is a passage that is often butchered and dragged alongside us as a defense or ammunition to do what we want to do and be free in Christ when that's not even what that means. But I think Romans 14 and 15 are of such great help because in that passage there is a weaker and a stronger brother. Uh, Not to say one is right and wrong, but one is indeed weaker and one is indeed stronger. And yet that passage still urges us to peace, to what makes for mutual upbuilding, to consider that God is judge over both weaker and stronger. And then in chapter 15, these words, Romans 15, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 7, those plain and simple and helpful words. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Friends, this is what right thinking should look like when in conflict. That because of our identity and our heavenly citizenship in the Lord, we can then agree in the Lord, to think as one in the Lord. Well, Paul has plenty more for us here in Philippians 4 uh, in our second Realm. The first was right thinking in conflict, and now let's look at right thinking in the everyday. Right thinking in the everyday. Paul transitions his instruction from this very particular situation at the church in Philippi to the everyday lives of these believers. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here we have Paul's application of right thinking in everyday life. And we'll see here just how important right thinking is in our existence as pilgrims sojourning in this foreign land. We see this right thinking in the three commands in these verses. First, to rejoice in the Lord, and then second, to let your reasonableness be known, and then third, to not be anxious about anything, and then a subset of that being what to do instead, which we'll look at later. Uh, First, let's look at the basis for this kind of right thinking in all of life in our everyday in verse 4. Again, that's rejoice in the Lord always. Again, Paul reiterates, again, I will say rejoice. Grace on campus, from cover to cover, the Bible shows us uh, that the overall demeanor of the Christian existence is one of constant and abiding joy. It's having the reality of salvation in our lives and being able to actively call it to mind because right thinking about the gospel and about its truth will inherently lead us to joy. In everything, whether it's in the face of a trial, it's in light of new opportunities or unexpected circumstances, in pain and in sorrow or in delight and in levity, we can and we must find and rehearse the joy we have in Christ. The truth that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, The truth that he took your sin and gave you instead his perfect righteousness. Uh, The truth that he redeemed your life from the pit and crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. This truth is to be for the Christian a never-ending, overflowing fountain of joy. This is a joy, as we've seen in Philippians, not rooted in our own righteousness. This is a joy we could not come up with on our own or we cannot conjure up ourselves. This is a joy that is found not in life's amusements and satisfactions. It's a joy that is not of this world and that is not based on us. What Paul is calling us to here is to actively bring to mind and rehearse and rejoice in the incredible grace and mercy of God in Christ. This transcendent joy that we've seen, that Paul has shown us in this letter that we have as Christians. It's a joy rooted in having been given the perfect righteousness of Christ, nothing of our own. It's a joy found in gaining Christ and in living for Christ and in knowing Him more. It's a joy that is being found in Him. A joy that withstands even the fiercest of trials and transcends the most valuable of earthly treasures. And friends, it's a joy 
that can only be understood by those who see and never tire of seeing that we have been saved from the depth of our sin by a gracious and an all-wise God. You see, right thinking in the everyday is first filling your mind with this truth and never seeing it as basic or unnecessary. And then seeing your heart filled with this joy and then living faithfully step by step in light of this truth. 1 Peter 1.8 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Friends, our faith is a grace-aware, joy-filled faith. And so our very existence as Christians ought to be this always rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Our joyful awareness of our great salvation lays a foundation for what's next in verse 5, this reasonableness that by the witness of our lives is to be known by everyone. This reasonableness It could be translated gentleness or courteousness or courtesy. Uh, The sort of definition of this word is uh, someone characterized by this, not insisting on every right or letter of the law, not insisting on every custom. And so this is a sort of patience, a a gentle forbearance with others, a yielding spirit. This is a word we've seen before. A couple years ago, we looked at Titus, and we looked at Titus chapter 3. It says there, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and in the word, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Last year, we looked at James, James 3.17, describes the the wisdom that is from above, and describes it as pure and then peaceable. And then the third word there is gentle. It's that word that we see here in Philippians 4. A gentleness, a reasonableness, a a courtesy toward others, a, a winsomeness. This is a verse that helped get me through the beginning stages of COVID a couple years ago in thinking what should our witness look like as Christians on a secular campus, even if digital, yet those who have a hope that is greater than even this, this virus and this verse was an anchor for my soul. You see, what keeps us reasonable in an unreasonable world? What keeps us kind and gentle and patient in a world that maligns us? It's not only the joy we have in Christ that we just looked at. It's what's at the end of verse 5. Look there. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. The coming of our Lord Jesus is soon. It's imminent. 
His return is near. Our final resurrection that we looked at at the end of chapter 3, it is at hand. And that's what gives us reason for reasonableness. A few times a week, I have the joy and privilege and responsibility of looking after our three boys all by myself. It's something that's earned, not given. Uh, It's something that over the years I've gotten more comfortable with. Kimmy is kind and even early along trusted me with that. But it's a thing. It's a thing. The men in the back can agree. The father's back there. It's something that is a thing. The very first time that mom drives away to go on a coffee date with someone from church or just take the quick grocery store trip and you're all alone for me with the boys and I'm grateful they're boys that we can have a little fun. Now, when Kimmy's gone, uh, we bust out the basketballs or the toy trucks or uh, when things are a little busy and they need to be able to do something, of course, Cocoa Mountain comes in handy. But they're always, and I, I mean always, there is always a point in time when even if it's just 20 minutes, that trip away becomes just a little bit too long. And us fathers, we have, we have a trick for this. It's a phrase that comes naturally. It's a phrase that is logical. It's a phrase that brings a sense of reasonableness to even crying boys. Mommy's coming home soon. Mommy is coming home soon. And as soon as they hear that garage door, they're fine. They're fine. Christian, that the Lord is at hand helps the drama and the hype of this life to fade. It pushes us to get our affairs in order in light of eternity. That the Lord is at hand helps us uh, characteristically to be more patient and long-suffering with other people. That the Lord is at hand eliminates our impulse to be so judgmental and maybe triggered at everything and everybody, uh, what they do and say that doesn't match up to our standard. That the Lord is at hand kills our instinct that is in every one of us to prove ourselves to other people and leave a legacy here. That the Lord is at hand leads us to think rightly and to hold a little more open-handedly. That the Lord is at hand transforms us into the most reasonable, the most gentle, the most kind sort of people. In Titus 3, uh, verse 8 says this, it, it calls this kind of reasonable, courteous witness excellent and profitable for people. You see, as pilgrims, we need to keep looking up, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven and the Lord is at hand. And then we have this unique and unexpected reasonableness because of that fact, despite whatever may be going on around us. And that 
reasonableness is a witness to a watching world. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Finally, in this section, as we look at right thinking in the everyday, look at verse 6 as Paul characterizes what our thinking ought not to be like, in a sense. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. The joyful, reasonable Christian has no valid reason to be anxious. The joyful, reasonable Christian has no valid reason to be anxious in anything. Thinking rightly with the Lord at hand and all the heavenly blessings ours in Christ Jesus, with the truth of Romans 8 that we read earlier as the wind in our sails, there are no grounds for worry or anxiety in the hand of an all-powerful, all-wise, ever-faithful, good God, we rest safe and secure. Turn with me to Matthew 6, and we need to see the words of our Lord Jesus in this, in assuring us of His provision in this life, and His kindness, and His goodness, and His generosity to us. Matthew 6 is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, look at this section, verse 25. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither, neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So many of you face the situation even right now as you think about the summer. You've got a big test marked by four letters of some kind. and uh, Maybe you've got an internship and you're moving to a city and you don't know what that'll be like. Uh, some of you are graduating and you don't know what's next and you've been applying to dozens and dozens of jobs with not a response. There are so many things 
that the lens of a human being are things to worry about, things to be anxious about. But God, by his word through the Apostle Paul, and even in the words of our Lord Jesus, shows us the reason why we are not to be anxious. You see, these instructions are not to say that reasons for worry and anxiety in this life don't exist. It's not to deny the realities of a fallen world. Both of these passages, Matthew 6 and Philippians 4, is simply helping us think rightly about our anxieties and worries and stresses. That we ought to take every care and concern to the Lord. Back in Philippians 4, look at verse 6 again. Do not be anxious about anything, but instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see, this verse is not saying that anxiety doesn't exist, that, that care or concern does not exist. It's saying, let it become instead a request given to an almighty God. The grounded and right thinking of the Christian in humble and thankful acknowledgement of God's provision brings everything before the Lord, casting every anxiety on Him because He cares for you. There's a sweet and humble submission to this. The right thinking that assuages wrong feelings. It's a resting on God and His rich promises. You see, right thinking in the everyday as it relates to anxiety and worry it isn't that you have some kind of balanced frame of mind or a conjured up calm about you. The importance, the significance of right thinking for the Christian here is that you would strengthen your trust in Him that you would look up from the worries of this world and see the one who made an end of all your sin and to know that if he gave you Christ, what also would he not give us in all things? And that you would see that he does not just save you from the terror of your sin and then just leave you on the wayside to figure it all out and flounder through this life, but that you would see his faithful provision and his steadfast love. And that you would see, specifically here in Philippians 4, that to assure you of his provision, his peace will guard your heart and your mind. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The picture here is a, a garrison, an ancient Near Eastern secret service, a protective detail for us on our pilgrim journey. And that garrison is the supernatural peace of God. It's a peace that we cannot come up with on our own, just by our own right thinking. Uh, this kind of peace is beyond human understanding and human ability. It's a peace that comes 
only from God when we've taken our anxieties and cast them upon Him. And that peace guards the Christian, bringing this humble trust and thanksgiving that we have in prayer full circle and seeing us through. You see, it isn't right thinking in and of itself that guards you. What guards you is God Himself. What guards you is that He provides His peace. This is the precious promise that God will answer the prayers of the righteous. That for those who in faith bring their anxieties to the Lord, He will hear and He will provide peace. This reminds me of one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 62. You can turn there to see this, Psalm 62. We won't look at all of it, but there's a few verses that I think are helpful in seeing the soul's trust in the face of anxiety in the everyday. Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then verse 5, the psalmist seems to repeat himself, but adds some nuance. For God alone my soul wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation, my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. And then look at verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Friends, we have a God who is our refuge, who is our rock, who is our salvation, a fortress. And that's the picture we have in Philippians 4, verse 7, that His peace is a refuge for us and that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus amidst the storms and the uncertainties of life. This is right thinking in everyday life. Right thinking that is joyful. Right thinking that is reasonable. Right thinking that is trusting of an almighty God. Right thinking that we are to have as pilgrims pressing on toward the celestial city all along guarded by the peace of God. And so Grace on Campus, would we pursue right thinking every waking moment, taking every, uh, every thought captive for Christ and then submitting our minds and our hearts to Him even just in the every day. Finally, in verses 8 and 9, let's look quickly at right thinking in principle. Right thinking in principle. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So far tonight, we've been looking at right thinking applied, right thinking in practice, in the midst of conflict and in the everyday. And my prayer is that we've gleaned much from what right thinking looks like practically. Here, Paul gives us right thinking in principle. This here, these two verses, are a grid for right thinking. In one sense, these truths that are in these verses are like a a sieve, a, a series of mesh for straining out the impurities and the excesses of our thought life, leaving us with the gold of right and godly thinking. In another sense, the truths in these verses are kindling. They're fire starter for our thinking. Uh, That which will stoke the flame of a mind working and a heart burning for the cause of Christ. Notice in these verses the repetition of the word whatever. There is an openness Tremendous freedom in our thought lives here and in our lives in general. You see, Paul here in his instruction isn't playing thought police. He's not, this isn't a mind control game. Paul is showing us here that the right thinking of a Godward life begins with establishing a, a sort of character and a direction for our thoughts. And yet it also does involve cultivating a willingness that even is hinted at in verses 6 and 7 of right thinking of a Godward life, that it, it, it pleases God and it submits to God. And that which maintains our heavenward gaze is what we set our minds on. This list isn't meant to be a comprehensive list. It's not a, it's not a checklist, so to speak. Rather, it's a list that characterizes the right thinking of the Christian. These are character traits of right thinking. First, uh, we are to think on whatever is true. Uh, This is thinking on, indeed, biblical or gospel truth, but it's also thinking upon the truth of a situation. You see, instead of the what-ifs or the contingencies or the untruths, uh, we are to think on whatever reflects truthfulness or dependability in a situation. This is rejecting irrational, speculative thinking. We are to, secondly, think on whatever is honorable, uh, that which is worthy of respect. Uh, This word means noble. It's the same word used of leadership qualification in Titus 2 and 1 Timothy 3. Uh, We are to be worthy of respect or honorable and here our thoughts are to be that way there's a connotation of moral excellence but also of maturity and respectability and so our thoughts are to gravitate toward that which honors God and honors others and shows in our own honorability a reflection of who God is third we are to think on whatever is just and now this is a admittedly broad term, a little bit vague here. Paul could be describing righteousness or justness as defined by the character of God, but 
It could also mean a more general thing, uh, like right thought or correct thought or action. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul uses this word as he says, it is right or it is just for me to feel this way about you. It's the logical thing. And so it may or may not have a moral connotation here, but it is thinking or reflecting upon and therefore pursuing in life that which is righteous, but also just right in an objective sense. It's not just what benefits you, but what is right and what is righteous in the eyes of God. Fourth, we are to think on whatever is pure. There is a explicit and stated moral purity to our thoughts and speech and in our actions. We are to reject evil, uh, not relativize it or normalize it. Uh, this is training your mind to despise evil, not to trivialize it or be entertained by it. The fifth, we are to think on whatever is lovely. There's a connotation of being beautiful or attractive or admirable. Uh, see, as Christians, we think through the lens of the world as a reflection of God's glory and what he has created and we see his beautiful design for others made in his image and and we see the beauty of what he has done in the gospel by our thoughts and Titus says with our lives we are to adorn or beautify the doctrine of God we are to think on whatever is lovely Sixth and last, we are to think on whatever is commendable, that which is worthy of praise or attractive, that which is spoken highly of by others, that which is of good repute. These are things that are a testimony or a resume for who we are as Christians, a proof of who we are in Christ. These are things that maintain the integrity of our faith. These are the things that we are to think of. And Paul rounds this list out simply with two other big bucket categories. If there is any excellence, any goodness, anything worthy of praise, anything that is worthy of praising God for, and that is uh, everything uh, true and everything honorable and everything just and pure and lovely and commendable, that is what we are to praise God about. And those are the things by which we must guard our minds and our thoughts. Friends, there are so many implications here for what we set our thoughts on. For what we feed our minds. For what we choose to talk to others about. And for what we watch and play and enjoy and for what we give import and access to. There are so many implications and so many practical things we could talk about, but this list gives us the character of our right thinking and helps us to think positively instead of prohibitively on what our heavenward mind should be like. When you go on vacation and you give your keys to a trusted friend or neighbor, you do that knowing that they are a trustworthy person. You don't just give your keys to anyone. And yet, with our minds, we so often 
leave the door wide open. Whatever scrolls our way is what can capture our minds. And yet this is the priority, this is the significance of our right thinking. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You see, all of these things for the Philippians exemplified and spoken by Paul are to be how we think indeed, but also how we live. In whatever situation or whatever decision you face, whatever temptation you are up against, whatever possibility or impossibility you face, we are to, as God's own children, think within this grid in verse 8 and defend our minds and therefore our very lives from the untrue and the dishonorable and the unjust and the impure and the unlovely, the not commendable, that which is not excellent and unworthy of our God. With all, the world, with all that the world has to offer and all that our minds are so naturally drawn toward in our flesh, we have a choice in what we feed our minds and what we set our minds on. And so, GOC, let us be faithful in seeing the priority of right thinking here in Philippians 4. Our stewardship of our minds doesn't involve meditation techniques or mind tricks not an emptying of minds or perfecting and sharpening our thoughts. Our stewardship is a simple and joyful pursuit of all that is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. And it's filling our minds, all while being guarded by God and His perfect,